Hello and welcome to the third episode of The Brass Cast. I'm your host Zoe Wright and today I have the absolute pleasure of being joined by cornet player and conductor Lee Ray. Lee started playing when he was just eight years old for his local village band, Littleborough, and at the age of 15, invited to join the fairy band before later joining Black Dyke, to which he spent the most part of 25 years as a member of the band. Lee is well known to the brass band movement as being one of the leading cornet players of his generation, having made the Repiano chair his own, playing for bands such as Black Dyke, Grimethorpe Colliery and fairies. Having won every major competition as a player, Lee has also proven himself to be an inspiration in front of a band too, as the conductor of the incredibly successful Wardle Academy Youth Band, to which he has led to European, National, Butlins and Brassing Concert Youth Champions, all and multiple times. In 2015, <laughs> Lee was awarded the Harry Morton Medal in recognition of his services for the teaching of young people in the brass band movement. Lee is also the lead trumpet player of the Jäger Maestro's Oompa Band and is a Geneva Cornet and Trumpet Ambassador. And before we get into the interview, here is a recording Lee has made during lockdown of Aratunian's Concert Scherzo. <laughs> I'd want to say to you, Lee, thank you for being on the podcast and giving up your time and allowing me to, to speak to you. That's fine. <laughs> so, Look to it. Great. So we'll just delve right in then, shall we? Um, yeah, can right. you tell us um, when and why you started playing? 
Basically, uh, my grandparents owned, owned a, a public house called the New Inn in Littleborough, and my uncle, who was the brother of my grandma, had been uh, a professional trumpet player during the war, and uh, when he'd retired and everything, he joined the, the local band, Littleborough. But then when he retired from that, I used to see his corner in the pub, uh, this old boozy, in a black box and I was mesmerised by, by this instrument and uh, I was desperate to play it anywhere. My granddad ended up buying it for me, off my Uncle Stephen, and I started lessons and I just sort of took to it. I always remember actually playing out on, on the street, it was snowing, I think it, well, it must have been like Christmas time, and uh, my dad come to the front door with this black box and he shouted me in and we were all throwing snowballs and sledging up the street. And uh, I went I went to the front door and he goes, I've, I've got a surprise for you, Lee. And it was this cornet. And my friends have always said ever since, uh, do you know what, Lee? You went in your house that night and we never saw you then for 25 years. <laughs> you were always in practising. So that's how I actually started playing. And obviously then I went and played for Little Britain when I was eight years old. Wow, that's amazing. What a surprise that must have been for you to get in for playing playing in the snow to a cornet at home. And and I've still got the same instrument. I kept no, it. That's amazing. I should, have, I should have got it actually. It's, it's up in the loft. But I, I kept it for a sentimental reasons, you know. So Wow, that is that that really is amazing. So <laughs> would you say it was your uncle that inspired you to play like in your early years of learning to play? Or would, it must have been. Is there anyone else that inspired you? Well, to be honest, there was no one else in the family then who was musical other than my uncle Stephen. My dad was a good dart player, <laughs> darts player for the pub. But uh, other than that, there were no musicians in the family at that point. So uh, it was just basically me seeing this instrument, wanting to play it, and also what he did when I started learning then. He had a massive collection of LPs, mainly all Fairies and Black Dyke al- albums, which is why then that was my ambition to play for those two bands. Oh, that's <laughs> lovely. Did in yeah, that's that's really lovely. So you mentioned then, obviously, yeah, you joined you joined Fairies at fifteen, and then correct yeah. me if I'm wrong, you moved to Black Dyke when you're about nineteen. Yeah. Could you tell us how that opportunity came about for you to join Fairies and then move to Black Dyke? Yeah, so basically, before that, I was in, I was invited, believe it or not, to join Bessies of the Barn when Roy Newsom was the conductor mm-hmm. in 1982. So I was only then about 12. Wow. And if I had joined them, I would have won the British Open that year, which would have been brilliant, you know, but... Uh, my dad decided against it, my mum and dad, because they said I was too young really to join them. But Roy had always remembered me, and he actually, if, if, if you look back at the records, he moved to Fairies in 1985, and Fairies rang me up and asked me, because of Roy Newsom, whether I would uh, be interested in going playing for them. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I was a little bit older, so that's, that's what happened there. And I had to audition again, uh, I had to have two auditions at the factory at Ferris, at Eaton Chapel. Firstly, for uh, the resident conductor, who was Alan Lawton at the time, and Brian Taylor took on it, and Cyril Hewitt, who was the band manager. My dad took me in the car, 
I passed the audition and they said as long as as far as they were concerned, everything was fine. I was I was in the band, but I had to be uh, heard one more time then by the professional conductor, which was Major Peter Parks, uh, who's sharing Black Dyke and Fairies. Obviously, Fairies at that point was his second band. But I had to play again for the major, which I did. And I remember playing in the old band room at Fairies, which was the old fire engine garage. I played Cleopatra. I only played about three lines and the major just went, that's fine, you're in. <laughs> wow. That's, that's how I joined Fairies and me, mum and dad had to drive me to Stockport twice a week for half past five rehearsals, like they used to be in the old days. That's early, that, now, isn't it? Comparison well, if to you, like if you think, Exactly. So if you think, Zoe, back then, the majority of the band at Fairies then worked at the factory. So they, they used to just come straight out of work at five o'clock. Yeah. They'd all go in the canteen, do a loads of really nice steak and kidney pies. I always remember that. <laughs> we'd have some... We'd have some pies, a drink of coffee and what have you, and then straight into rehearsal. And we'd finish for half seven, whereas most of the other bands were just starting. That's to be fair, I'd not thought about it like that, if the work is just it going... Great. It, it was good, it was good. Mm, it's great. So how did then the opportunity come to move to Black Dyke? Was that to do with Major Peter Parks? Not that I know of, but I had a fantastic time at Fairies, and I owe a lot of my own personal playing down to people like Brian Taylor who uh, was a massive inspiration to me and a, a fantastic cornet player. And I had a really good four years there and, and I had no intentions of moving. But then 1988, I got a phone call asking me if I could do a concert with Black Dyke, Christmas concert at Jewsbury Town Hall, which I did. Uh, and uh, I played rep as usual. Knew I'd done a good job, but I wasn't looking to join the band. And then a few days later, the phone goes again and they, they, they wanted to offer me the seat, which I actually turned down first time because I was happy at Fairies. Wow. Yeah, because at Fairies, during that four-year spell, we'd, we'd won the Open and the Nationals, come second at the European. It was, it was like a really successful period of the band's history at that point because they'd, they'd been in the wilderness a little bit before then. So I was dead happy at Fairies, but... I, tur I turned the chance down, but then they come knocking on the door again in 1989, early 89, I decided to make the move. Hmm. That's brilliant. Which I was upset about it. I was, I was happy and I was upset as well to yeah. leave Fairies, you know, but I just wanted to try something different. And, well, you were associated with Black Dyke for a very long time, so it was clearly a good move for you. Yeah, of course it was, and I had, I had a fantastic time there. So it's encouraging to see nowadays that a lot of bands have younger players in the band or they have associated youth bands to nurture players. But what was it like yeah. for you playing in Fairies and, and Dyke when you were young? Well, we took our inspiration from the players around us and obviously being a young player, uh, sitting in bands like Fairies and Black Dyke at that time, all the players in there seemed really old to me. But they were like fantastic players. Like, for instance, Lyndon Bagley was still on Euphonium at Fairies when I did my first Open with them. And then the same thing at Black Dyke. You still had players in that band like John Slinger, who uh, had been in the band 47 years. Wow. You know, this length of time. David Pogson. Uh, there's loads of them. Loads of the old school players. Derek Jackson. You name it. They were all still in there. So that... As, as, as a young person, it was, it was quite daunting playing in, in, in both of those bands. 
me out, I can imagine. So it goes without saying that you are regarded of one of the finest, if not the finest, rep piano cornet players in the world. And, you know, mm. rep is often considered the seat where you need, like, your second best cornet player on after your principal cornet. What did you yeah. enjoy about playing in, on that position? I think with rep piano, it's, there's not the same amount of pressure as playing principal cornet, obviously. And uh, although... Uh, just to get this in, I did I did play principal cornet with all three bands at some point. I was officially made principal cornet at Fairies, mm-hmm. which I ended up not wanting to do. Yeah. And I deputised for Richard Marshall a few times at Grimethorpe. Mm-hmm. And I actually uh, took over caretaker principal cornet at Black Dyke uh, when Roger Webster left the first time until they uh, brought in the new player, which was Ian Porthouse. And sitting on that seat, there's a lot of pressure. Whereas on Repiana, it's a great part because you get you get solo opportunities, but there's there's just not that same pressure on you, you know, playing it. Plus, plus it's your own part. You're not sharing it really with any anybody, and it's a great part because you, you know, you're working with the soprano cornet, you're working with the solo cornet, you work with the back row. You know, there's there's pieces where you you're actually. Uh, you're working with, for instance, Ravenswood. There's a there's a great bit at the end in that for the rep where you're playing along with, the, I think it's trombone section, mm. the, the big tune near the end. And uh, you get to play with every every section of the band. It's, it's, it's always been a great part and one I've enjoyed. Yeah, it's lovely to hear that. I mean, it's, it is, I suppose, the only cornet part that's on its own other than SOP, isn't it? It is, yeah. And, you know, over the years, there's been some... Uh, Difficult parts written, for instance, I, I always remember 1992 British Open when Cloudcatcher come out and I thought, oh my word, I'm going to have to show me the metal here now. Because basically it's a, it's quite a big feature for the back row cornets that led for the first section of it by the Pepiano cornet player. Anyway, we did have a good day because we won, we won the British Open that day, so I was, <laughs> I was very happy. And then, obviously, there's other pieces where Life Divine has got a, a famous rep solo in it, quite a technical one. I remember playing that one with fairies at Men of Brass, even when that was going. So I'm actually that old now, can't believe it. But it was Wolverhampton Civic Hall, Harry Mortimer conducting. It was fairies and Fordons. And the big finishing piece was Life Divine. And it was me and Christine Withington, on rep so I was on rep for Fairies Christine Withington was on rep for Fordens and when it come to that bit I had to do it on the old so that was a bit of a worry but again I got it right so I was pleased (laughs) that's all that matters getting it right so I mentioned you've you've won every major brass band contest you've had a lot of success you've not just won these contests once you've won them multiple times yeah. But obviously, you have a very important role in these performances. What do yeah. you think it takes to be a great rep piano player? And how important is it to have a strong rep player within a band? What I always wanted to do was, was take leadership of the back row cornets. Obviously, not, not, not the front row, because that's really... I mean, the principal cornet should lead the whole section. Mm-hmm. I, I enjoyed, actually... Taking, taking that role on the back row. Obviously, as well, the, the soprano player has a lot of say in it. And when me and Kevin Crockford, who, who I sat at the side of for 
14 years non-stop. Me and him really did sort of dominate the cornet section sometimes. <laughs> sometimes we were a bit, sometimes we might have been a little bit harsh on some of the players, but it's only because we wanted the best and we wanted to, to win all the time, you know. But he was a massive inspiration to me, Kevin. Fantastic player. That leads me into my next question quite quite nicely, actually. Um, talking about, you know, being the leader of kind of the back row, would you kind of say it's especially important to have a good relationship with the principal corner as a player to work with? Yeah, definitely, because there's been occasions where, again, uh, I've, I've had to talk to, to others in the principal corner team about things where we might we might spell each other off in, in certain solos and things like that just to help each other, other out, you know. Mm. So it is an important role. I always think sort of that corner of the cornet section, you know, principal cornet, bumper up, rep and sort is a, is a very important section. You sh- and there should be a lot of communication within them four players to make sure the rest of the team is, you know, working hard. Yeah, and that's important you know, like all year round, not just when you're on, on the run up to a contest. That it's, it's an important relationship to have week in, week out for your concerts as well. Always. Contest. Yeah, I mean, when I, when I was a little bit younger, I was I used to treat every concert or every rehearsal like it was a contest. Like at Black Dyke, there was always a, a row of seats behind the back row where people could come and watch the rehearsal. And I, I just wanted it to be the best all the time, you know which I think we all did. But I always, I, I took it that serious, always, always, even in rehearsals. Yeah, it's the only way I, if you treat it like a contest day, you're always putting your best uh, performance on. You're keeping consistent all the time, aren't you? Yeah, and it, it don't come as a shock then when, you, when you're actually on stage, you know, if, you, if you're performing to that level and wanting everyone else to, to join in, you know, at that level, then it's not a shock when you come to sit on the stage in front of an audience. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. So we touched on it slightly there, the, the repiano player being the kind of connecting player between the front and back row, the, the, the rep player being the kind of leader yeah. of the back row, as, as well as kind of being joined to the front, at the front row at the same time. Yeah. Um, but so it is is isn't very much a connecting player and is an important role. But is that is it kind of that leadership in the back row kind of and the connection? Does that just kind of happen because of the parts that you're given, where it's a bit of you know a bit of up the front row, a bit of the back row? Does that kind of role just happen, or do you kind of have to work around with all the players in in the section? It depends on the basis sometimes, doesn't it? Um, so like I said, the club catcher fells thing. You, it's the rep part, second and third coin parts are dead important. So you, when pieces like that come up, you've got to be working. You've got to be working as a team, you know. And you, you do learn playing rep to to work out, you know, which section of the band you're playing with. And maybe I can't think of the piece now, but you, you can hear sometimes if someone's got a solo with you. So, for instance, say if I had a solo with uh, the baritone player. And we weren't breathing properly in the same place and all that. After this, I'd go and have a chat with him. You know, get together and say, we've spotted each other. We know that we've got that bit together. Should we make sure we all, let, should we breathe here? What do you think? You know, work that sort of way. Yeah. Yeah, sort of. It's written for you, but you have to work on it on yourself as well with everybody else. Yeah, I think as well, uh, just going on pieces written as well. I've been dead lucky with, 
some of the pieces what's been written whilst I've been on Rhett, and I know for a fact that Peter Graham has written Rep Solo specifically with me in mind, and he's told, he's told me that. One of them was on Alderley Edge, which was played at your brother's uh, wedding. Yeah, beautiful piece. And uh, there's a really nice rep solo at the end, mm. if you remember. I do, Because yeah. I stood up and played it at Ben's wedding. But Peter always told me that that little bit was, he, he had me in mind. And he, he did the same with um, Trying for Time. Yeah. You know, so I've been dead lucky in that respect that he's just been a rep player. I've been recognised by people, you know, as, as, as big as Peter Graham for him to actually think of me and have a sound in his head when he wants that solo playing. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. It's a great honour to be honest. Yeah. It's a great yeah. honour for me. I can imagine that. It's, you, you know, you, you're saying there about having your cornet solos or bits and bits of pieces. Any piece that kind of springs to mind as the best repiano cornet part written? Well, obviously, I've, I've, I en- I've enjoyed, I enjoyed the Cloudcatcher Fells one because I just, that is, you can play really beautiful on that. Then there's some great bits at the end, obviously, with uh, the sort with, with Kevin, where I know that we, we had a great day on that. Obviously, Old Dilly Edge is a great piece to play and, and the Train for Time, but th- there are loads of other pieces as well, which I've really enjoyed. In fact, there was one called Andantino, Tchaikovsky's Andantino, I forget which uh, big piece it was from, but uh, Jim Watson used to do it a lot with Black Dyke. And they were a brilliant bit for me where I used to sing right out over the band. And Jim always used to come like towering over the, the front row to conduct me through this bit and really, really en- enjoy it as, as much as I did, you know. So that, that was another uh, great piece I enjoyed playing. Mm, yeah, incredible. You've obviously worked with some incredible conductors in, in the time that you've been playing as well. Um, yeah. Who's been your favourite conductor? Is the one or can you not choose? Who's been the one where you've been sat there and you're just like, oh, I, c- I could have you conduct me every day? Do you know what? I think I think it's unf- it'd be unfair for me to say any, of, any is the best because they've all been brilliant from my first days at Fairies with Roy Newsom, mm-hmm. who I won the opening national with and got caught a second at the, at the Euros. Roy was fantastic in his own way. James Gullet, James Watson, David King, uh, Major Peter Parks, Alan Withington, Nick Childs. They, they, they've all got something where you can go away from performances and go, that, that is absolutely magic, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, I do find, like, in, in my last days at Black Day, is Nick very calming on stage, really calming, as, is, um, as was uh, Jim Watson. Mm-hmm as well, but Jim Watson was such a massive person in front of the band, he made you feel at ease anywhere, you know. Yeah. You felt safe when he was his conducting. But the other conductors are, are fantastic as well, and I, I couldn't name any of them as being my favourite, because they all had something special. No, no. I knew it would, would be a hard question for you to pick one, but no, I, you know, I'm only jealous that you've been able to work with these amazing conductors because I won't get the chance to, you know, some of those older conductors that yeah, you only, been, you only hear the very... stories about and you just wish you could you can, go back yeah. in time and sit in those rehearsals or watch those 
performances live? Oh, yeah. There's been some amazing times, there has. And, and I do think back sometimes how lucky I have been, mm-hmm. you know, with that. And that, yeah, people like, younger people like yourself could experience those times, you know, again. But there's a new generation of conductors coming through now who will, who will be hopefully equally as good. Hopefully so. My, yeah. my, uh, my hope's high. You mentioned before sitting next to Kevin Crockford, but obviously sitting on rep, you do sit next to Soprano Corner. What's that relationship yeah. like sitting next to the Soprano Corner? You know, we talked about the relationship with the principal corner. What's it like being next to Sop and that kind of partnership? You've got to, you've got to get it on. You've got to have, you've got to have, you know, work as a team, definitely. I mean, I, if I go through all the Sop players, there's some really fantastic ones. Going back... So the first one, which was Alan Witchley, who was a superstar in his own right when he was younger. First sitting inside of him was quite daunting, 15 years old. Nigel Fielding, another fantastic sock player. Craig Bennett, who did the double with fairies in 93, were a fantastic touch player. Paul Duffy came along at Black Dyke. There's been there's been a, a lot of players. Uh, Benjamin Reese, John. But the, uh, pro- probably for me, the two... the Two big daddies in the sock playing have been Peter Roberts, who I had about 18 months outside of at Black Dyke. And, and then obviously uh, my partner in crime was, was Kevin for 14 years. And we played at Fairies, Black Dyke and Grindthorpe together. An incredible partnership. And we did. The reason we, we, we were so long together is because we knew exactly you know, how each other played. And it's not often Kevin Kevin ever needed bailing out or a breath or anything like that. He didn't. Mm-hmm. But I was always there if he did. And I know that he always helped me out if I needed a breath. But there was actually occasions, and it, if he sees this video, he'll laugh, but he'll remember back to the first CD Jim Watson did with the band. We played La Preludes on there. The, the old version of it. But there's a great bit of them where the rep and the sock are trading parts. This part. Well, we, we, we were just, to be honest, we, we overtook the band on that. We were just so, so loud, <laughs> which was a bit naughty sometimes. But Jim Watson always did encourage it. So <laughs> when he used it, he got it from us both, you know. But if Kevin listens to this, He'll know exactly what I'm on about. Yeah. <laughs> I bet that's probably a partnership that you're probably at the point where you didn't even need to speak to each other if you needed a breath or this or whatever. You could probably just sit there and you could tell, couldn't you? After yeah, by, by the end, we, we, we got that used to each other's playing. We knew exactly what we were doing. Yeah. yeah. Great times. Incredible. You could listen to that CD. Which CD is it? It's, I think it's called Slavonic Brass. Put Leprelude on and listen to the end. You'll hear the rep and sock going bananas. <laughs> uh, I, will, I will find that and uh, I encourage anyone that is listening to also go and find that recording. <laughs> we do it. It's Amazing. So you played for Black Dyke for going on 25 years. Is there a period of time that stands out to you when you think the band was at its best or was it, or it was significantly successful? That it was that in that that time that it was just at its peak and it was just incredible. There's been so many times sat on that stage with Black Dyke where I thought I can't believe how good this is. 
you know, winning the Europeans with going back with David King, uh, I think we got 99 out of 100. Wow. And we, we absolutely walked it. We're 10 points clear. So that performance to Bess and Satine, which Morgan was principal euphorium then, or as a kid himself, mm. that, that's a standout one. So there's, there's been loads. There's been there's been times I've sat on stage uh, even lately when Nick was conducting uh, winning the Euros again. Brilliant times of the any nights at the Open with Nick. But the one what always sticks in my mind is Symphony Hall. And it was like, I think it was called Brass Explosion or something. It might have been before the Sunday afternoon concerts they used to do after the Open. Yeah. It was like a midweek one. So this was with Jim Watson and we did the entire planet suite with the Choral Society up in the gods. You, you know the symphony hall, the big doors. Yeah. And in, in the last in the last movement, Neptune, where the where the, the heavenly voices start singing. It was coming through these doors and the band had just played amazingly through this. Yeah. And I was sat on stage thinking, this isn't getting any better than this. This, this is the best now. So that weren't a contest, but it was just a magic moment, you know. Yeah. And there's been, there's been lots of them times. Yeah, I can imagine. Black Dyke does have an incredible heritage, a very long uh, heritage. Yeah. So what was it like for you when you were playing for Black Dyke to be a part of that heritage? You know, you're a, you're a significant part of that heritage now. You, com- you committed a lot of your time to the band. What was it like? Yeah. Was it to sit whilst you were playing for the band, even reflecting on it now, now you're not playing for the band? What was it like to be a part of that heritage? Well, it, it's like anything, I suppose. If if you're a player, a footballer, and you play for Man United, you're trying to uphold a, a big institution there where it needs to be seen at the top all the time. And music and brass banding, for me, Black Dye is like Man United. And I know everyone goes on, Nick goes on about that easy Alex Ferguson, but I really do believe that Black Dye are the flagship of the brass band movement. Core is obviously fantastic and winning everything at the minute, but Dyke still, uh, for me, are the flagship. And when you play for that band, that is what you have to remember all the time, especially in the old days where the band, uh, you, you obviously know now the band played upstairs in the building, in, in the rehearsal rooms for 150 years. And when we moved downstairs, it was like, oh, is this right? But... Things have worked out because we we had, the band had one contest, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you're up in that old band room, all you need to do is give yourself a bit of a a wake up call is have a look around the walls at some of the pictures mm-hmm. of previous players who've gone before you who've sat in your seat because there's been some amazing Repiano Cornet players in that band: Norman Christie, uh, Michael Allen, David Horsfield. Unfortunately, Neil Jowett, he was on red. He's, he's just recently died, which is a real shame. Mm. There's been some fantastic rep piano players. And you've got to remember who sat in them seats before you. You know, that's that's the wake-up call and the reality of playing for that band. Yeah. So during your playing career, you've played in a band, and not necessarily just brass banding, you know, in other occasions, you've been a part of some performances at the BBC Proms, you've... you've you've performed with many top class 
musicians who yeah. are the stand who are the standout ones who are the best musicians that you've had the chance to perform with well again there's there's been a lot there's been a lot of instances so so for instance we did a, an audience with elton john so you can imagine doing that and literally we recorded that just in the middle of when Princess Diana had been killed. So Elton John was massive news at that time as well. Obviously, he's massive anyway. Yeah. But he, he sang Candle in the Wind at a funeral. Mm-hmm. So he was doing his show and audience Elton John, and that was a, a standout occasion for me, performing on that with him. I mean, all, all we played was a bad with me, but at least we did it in one take. It took the Spice Girls about 10 goals to do really? that. Bit. Yeah. Wow. And that's what we always we always joke about black dyke like the SAS. You know, we went on, did it, and got off, and we were straight into the uh, I think it was the green room then with loads and loads of drinks and stuff, and we had great time. Amazing. So, who are the top brass players then that you've had the chance to perform with? Well, uh, I was lucky enough again at Cadogan Hall with Black Dyke to record uh, the Seven Suite with uh, Sir Colin Davis conducting. He'd never conducted a brass band before, but at the time he was the conductor of the uh, LSO. And that came about through uh, Rod Franks, who told him about Black Dyke and that it might be good for him to one day try conducting a brass band. And I always remember it. Again, he stood in front of a band, and this is the guy who's worldwide renowned conductor, LSO, you know, the main guy there. And uh, he said... What are the baritones and what where are their sounds? So we had to sort of point them around wherever and where, and no word of a lie. And again, you can listen to this recording because uh, it's out on CD. It was a one take of Seven Suite with Sir Colin Davis conducting. It was immense. It was brilliant. So that that was that was being lucky enough to be conduct, conducted by him. Another time was playing at the Barbican. Uh, this time with, with fairies for uh, the retirement due for Maurice Murphy. So the hall was absolutely packed with all his friends, all the other uh, orchestra was in the audience. And we accompanied Maurice in a solo called People. The LSO Brass was playing as well, which was phenomenal. And I know uh, le- later on, Black Dyke did a joint concert with the LSO Brass, so that was fantastic because you're playing with some of the greatest brass musicians in the country, which there's just been so many fantastic opportunities. Sometimes you forget them all and then you just try and think and, you know, they'll they'll come back. There's been so many great experiences. Another Another funny little story was when we recorded for... Trudy Styler, who is Sting's wife, mm-hmm. we went down to Air Linda Studios in London and recorded Abide With Me for, for the album she was going to bring out, which was for Save the Rainforest. So the, the money made from the CD with all different sorts of music on it. It was going to go to this uh, organisation. And we'd we'd done our bit in the main concert hall. I don't know if you know Air Linda Studios, you will have seen it. No, I don't it's where know. they do all the orchestras recording there for the for the films and stuff like that in London. Right. Yeah. One of them, there's Abbey Road and then there's Air Linda Studios. Anyway, at, at break time, there's just a like a little tea room in there. And everyone just orderly queues up for the, you know, for a drink of tea and a, a slice of cake or whatever. 
And I'm stood in this queue and I thought, I recognise this family outside of it. And he was only quite small and he had like uh, one of them, them beanie hat things on. And when I looked, it was Liam Gallagher. Wow. And he, he were he were queuing up orderly for his drink of tea. And I just said, look, I know we're all here together. Like, and it might sound a bit wrong, but I said, can I have your autograph? Oh, And he goes, wow. hey, just give us a piece of paper. And I've still got that piece of paper today. Oh, yeah, you need to keep that forever. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, Oasis were, re- Oasis were recording in the smaller studio at the same time as we were in the orchestral studio. So that was another amazing experience. That is phenomenal. That is amazing we talked about it briefly you know you've been a part of all these successful contest performances even concert performances you've performed all over the world japan america across europe what performance stands out to you as the one where you think that there will be never there'll never be one that beats that one that as, as an opportunity to perform somewhere a venue or Anything. Well, I've got to say, the one which I, the one I always wanted to do was play at Sydney Opera House. And believe it or not, I was a member of Black Die, ready to go on that tour, which they did do the last time they went to Australia. And I decided to take a sabbatical from the band. So I never actually got to play there. And that would have been my, that would have been the icing on the cake for me to say, I played at Sydney Opera House, so I'm absolutely gutted about that. But the other one I can look back at with a lot of pride is playing at Carnegie Hall in New York, uh, which, you know, the saying is, if you haven't played Carnegie, you haven't made it, you know. So we were lucky to play to play at Carnegie Hall. And I don't know if you know, know the story about that. Uh, no, you might have heard it. So the band, the band was booked to play there at Carnegie Hall in the centre of New York City and I remember Jim coming, Jim Watson coming standing in front of the band and he says there's been a bit of an issue but we've sorted it out and the issue was Carnegie Hall got on to Black Dykes management and says we've got a bit of an issue with the name of the band because in America it means something different Yeah. so you can see where I'm going yeah. So they says, could you change the name of the band to the British Mills Band? The Don Foster and some British Mills Band. And apparently Jim says, uh, he says, yeah, we'll be happy to do that as long as you'll change the name of uh, Carnegie Hall to the Royal Albert Hall, New York City. <laughs> and apparently they went, we can't do that. <laughs> we're Carnegie Hall, New York City. And he says, well, we can't change our name either, so we're coming over as the Black Dyke Mills Band. And we that did. Is, that is brilliant. I, I've never heard that story before. No, it's absolutely true. And if there's anyone going to be listening to this who went on that, they'll know exactly what I'm on about. <laughs> that's, that's brilliant. That's definitely a good story to remember. And then, obviously, there's been times in Japan, some of the, the halls there are absolutely incredible. I think it's the tri- the triumphant hall in, in uh, Tokyo. Amazing. Your Ben's played there twice now, I think. Yeah. Uh, amazing places. But I would say my most memorable performances have been sharing the stage with Matthew. Uh, he joined the band now about seven years ago. But to share the stage with your, your own son and to win the major competitions, to travel to America, Japan... We even went to Abu Dhabi uh, with the Egg Maestros, but 
These were really special times for me. Uh, fantastic lad and a fantastic drummer. So I don't know who listens to this podcast. It could be absolutely anybody. But if there's young, some young players out there listening, obviously you're involved a lot with youth bands, which we'll, we'll talk about in a minute. For the, the younger players that are out there, they're still learning, they have aspirations mm. to be playing for the top bands like Black Dyke. What is your advice to those players who are, who are wanting to get to this level, who are practising really hard, what's your advice to those players that aspire to play at top championship section level? I think you've just got to, what they've got to do is just keep work, keep working hard, you know, keep doing the practice, keep putting yourself out there. If you get opportunities to go in depth for bands, go and do it because people will hear you more. Mm-hmm. I remember never, ever being in the house when I was like 15, 16, before that. Going playing, if the phone went and says, can you come and play for us? I'd be there like a shot. Mm-hmm. Not these days. I, I don't want to do it as, <laughs> as much. But uh, as a young player, if you want to get to play to one of those bands, then make sure you, you get out as much as, as you can into the public so people will hear you and recognise you and they'll start talking about you then. And they'll say, hey, she's good. Why don't we get her in? Or he, he's a good player. And I think that's what you need to do. Put yourself out there. Go and do loads of competition, solo competitions, things like that. And I mean, obviously, the, long... solo, the solo contests that can't, go in, can't be going on in person, but there are still a number that are going on online at the minute. You know, yeah, there is, yeah. Carry on doing that. Yeah. Keep doing it. So, obviously... You are the conductor of Wardle Academy Youth Band, which is incredibly successful, and you're well known for being the youth band's conductor. How did the association start with Wardle? Where did when did you start kind of being associated with the band? And well, my my association with Wardle goes right back to when I was a kid because I went to the school, <laughs> so I actually started as a first year there in 1981. It was either 81 or 82. Uh, it's that long ago, but obviously uh, I'd already been did, did started a band program at Wardle even by then. So the, the actual Wardle High School started in 1977, and the headmaster was William Anderson. The school actually started in the centre of Rochdale, believe it or not, behind the Chapman's Hall, which you'll know. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there's the old there's some big buildings behind there and that's where the first two intakes with Wardle started and because they didn't have any sort of playing out areas it was Mr Anderson's idea to give every kid a brass instrument a cornet or a tenor horn to give them something to do during play times break times and that's really how it evolved so then they moved to the new building in 1980 I think it was and I think I was the second year in the new building, which again was purposely built. Uh, you, you probably didn't know that school, Zoe. No. But uh, every year, so there was five years, each year had an area which was big enough to cater for a band of 100 kids. Right. And believe it or not, when I took my first band, so I'm going more into the future again here, when I took my first band there, I had 100 kids in year seven band. Wow. There is a picture. There is a picture of that band. Of just so the hundred, players, in, of just the the students that were in year seven. Of that year, a yeah. hundred students in year seven. In your there were a hundred. Honestly, I think it was a record. There were hundred kids in the first year band. 
Wow. Wow. So, but I've jumped a bit forward there and I saw, yeah, uh, I went there as a kid and then missed, obviously I'd gone through there and I'd been, I'd been successful as a cornet player with principal cornet of the school band and stuff when I was like 11. They didn't really, they didn't really want that because I had to mix with the 16 year olds, you know, like the fifth years and stuff like that. And they wanted me really to do my peers, which I didn't because if I'd have played in the first year band, I'd have been playing Twinkle Twinkle Little Star and I was on to things a bit more advanced than that. So, so I played, uh, I played in the school band there when I was 11. I'd won the British Championships while I was at school. And I think during this time, because I, I did well at McCormick, years later then, the headmaster who was still in charge remembered me and asked me if I'd go back and work there as a member of teaching staff uh, in 1993. So I've been a staff member there since 93, which I think is 26, 26, 27 years. Wow. So a long time. Long time. And do you know roughly how many hundreds of pupils, brass pupils you've had in that time? It must be even thousands. Well, well hundreds, because when when Mr. Anderson took me on at the school in 1993, what he wanted to do then, the, the kids used to come from primary schools then and start brand new as brand new players in year seven. So at 11 year old, he wanted to develop that and take that into the primary schools, into our feeder schools. And I always remember Mr. Anderson getting me into his office and saying, uh, Lee, I want you to go down to Smithybridge Primary School. And I've, he says, I've sorted this out. You're going to start teaching the kids there from year three upwards. And uh, he taught this through the head teacher there, who was Nigel Castledean at the time, who I then met years later, who sang in Huddersfield, who sang in Halifax Choral Society. Wow. Uh, but, so I started off the kids playing in primary schools at Smithy Bridge. They had two players. I got that with 50 kids eventually. Wow, that's great. I worked at, he then sent me to Healy. And basically now we're in, we're in seven feeder primary schools. And all of them have brass bands. That's amazing. I'm just hoping that, you know, with COVID and everything, things are going to be okay. But uh, hopefully they will be. Mm, yeah, I tried not really to bring too much about COVID into it because obviously mm. we're all going yeah. through it but mm. have you still been doing like brass band zooms or anything with primary schools or anything like that has that still been going on or is that just kind of been put on hold some of the some of the feeder schools have put it on hold mm-hmm. some of them have put it on hold in the first lockdown all of them still let me come in to their schools uh, I, there was there was no teaching going on, so what I was doing I was having the key worker kids, and uh, what I was doing I was making fun quizzes and playing things like from Disney on the carpet for them, making quiz uh, and just a bit of fun with them all. So this was kids as well and weren't even in the band, but I always made sure I plugged it at the end and said, you know this could be really good for you if you when we come out of this to start learning one of these. And obviously, I've done the same now in this third lockdown, isn't it? Mm-hmm. But this time, some some of the schools have, have said they don't want any visitors going in. So some of the schools are still doing it. I, and I am teaching at a couple of schools. They've, they've allowed me to continue with lessons there if the kids are in, yeah. which is good, you know. 
been useful that fingers crossed when everything's oh. back to normal that they're all still so keen to play because you've yeah. built, you've, you've worked so hard to build it all up hopefully all those kids are still wanting to play their instrument yeah and i've got to say as well with you know this building up thing over the years it's not just been me who's done it obviously it's been a team effort at wardle uh, my sister's heavily involved yeah. with it jane conway teaching brass and woodland and has got a fantastic wind band at Wardle as well, you know, so it is a team effort. And then there's another few members of staff in there as well who are working really hard. Yeah, yeah, of course. So you've had some tremendous success conducting the youth band in particular, you know, the European national brass in concert butlins champion mm. they've won everything pretty much mm. in the last few years what's the secret to having a successful youth band well to be honest when i when i was starting out the number one band was the band you used to play in which was youth band yeah was rochdale youth band so i used to like go to blackpool action medical research and watch you guys you past 2003 i'm never ever going to be able to compete with this i just cannot come up with the ideas because eric was a master of it absolutely absolutely incredible at it i honestly don't know how his brain works and you were part of them weren't you and so was yeah. ben mm-hmm. and that's that's my first memories of ben when he was like a little euphonium player there <laughs> we're not still and obviously he's, he's he's a good friend of mine now your brother. <laughs> but uh yeah so to me i think Eric Landon and Rochdale Youth Band were a big inspiration to me, to how I would want to get Wardle. And you know what? I think just at the end, I got them there because we won the very, very last action research at the Winter Gardens with the uh, the American programme, Donald Trump. I don't know if you saw it. No, I didn't know. But it was, oh, it, honest, it was, it was, it was good, but I, I was thinking out of the box with all this stuff. Yeah. So there was that one. Then it moved to the Sage and we did the Remembrance one where we created a giant poppy on stage at the end. Yeah, yeah, I saw, I saw it, that. It was emotional, that one, because it was marking the centenary at the end of the First World War. Yeah. And then the last one we did before everything shut down was the uh, the Inventions one. So basically, I think one three on the trot there, my inspiration was Eric Landon, the things he used to come up with Rochdale, but... I think winning three on the trot there, I proved I might, I might have got it right this time, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, I've, now, I saw the last couple of performances that you had at, at Brass in Concert, and it was yeah. it was like, well, this is it's very similar to what Eric did with Rochdale. Yeah, good. So that's you were definitely an inspiration to me. Oh, brilliant. So you're not just the conductor of Waddle Youth Run, but you're also in charge of Junior Blast aren't you? Yeah. Which is a, a band made up of players from multiple primary schools around yeah. Littleborough. I don't know exactly which ones, but how do you motivate primary school age children to practice and to play? Because, uh, you know, once you get to high school, you know, people get to the age where, oh, I want to do well, I want to practice. But how do you motivate primary school age children to practice just as hard and want to do just as well? Well, I mean, another thing, I, another thing I've learned from from conducting and seeing young kids bands and stuff like that is you've got to get the music right and it's got to be something they enjoy playing mm-hmm. if you don't if you don't do that if, if i take a group of eight nine year olds and make them play 
scales and hymn tunes all the time. They're going to be bored. They're going to pack in. And I don't want that. So I've always picked pieces like, and I've used the same pieces for a long time now with that band, but different generations of kids come through. And I do remember, I do remember some people saying, why don't you change the programme? You know, we're, we're fed up of hearing it. Well, this is people who, who, who are, are working with it with me, you know what I mean? I said, I'm not changing anything because these new kids are enjoying this. So for instance, the march I always use is Circus Parade because they sing halfway through it, the lions, the tigers, the elephants and the chimpanzees, they absolutely love it. How Fingers Will Travel by Jock McKenzie. They love it because it's technical and they, they want to they wanna master it. The, the amount of little cornet players I've had where they've come to me and they've said, Mr. Rig, and th- this could be like a little eight-year-old on back row, can I have solo cornet part to uh, have fingers of travel? Because I, w- I want to practice it. And I tell you what, I give it them straight away. Yeah. And they will practice and practice. And before you know it, they can play it. Yeah. The other one yeah. for the trombones is fooling about. Oh, I they love, love that. I love fooling about, yeah. That's one of my favourites. By Gary Gary Young, they they love it. Another one, what I used to use for for getting each section up is Young and Swinging. Another one that I loved when I was little. I loved it. So the proof's in the pudding because you you liked it, you know. So why change a winning, you know, why change a winning thing now when when you know the kids are going to enjoy it? Matt, the thing is then, once I know I've got them hooked that way, I'll say to them, do you fancy showing off and seeing if you could maybe get a certificate for a good year? And I'll get them to do the debut uh, exam, ABRSM or Trinity, you know, and that's how I'm sort of nurturing them on to doing exam work. And as they get old, you know, they, 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 they either enjoy that or they don't. Some, some just say, I'll, I'll work at it, Mr. Rick, but I don't want to do exam, you know, but yeah. that's what I do. And it seems to have worked. Oh, absolutely. You- you've had incredible success and you found what works for sure so definitely stick to it to keep it going yeah i think the other one as well with with junior blast is uh like i say it's about seven primary schools from the little area we have before lockdown we had 75 kids in that band turning up every thursday Every Thursday to, to Wardle Academy, band practice starts at four and finishes at five. And they used to love it. Hopefully, fingers crossed again that this it's all going to come back. But for me, one of my highlights with Junior Blast is they actually did the school proms one year. Right. Uh, and we got absolutely every kid playing in that one. So I think there were about 150 on stage. Wow. We took about seven or eight coaches down to London. But it's Whit Friday. Whit Friday for me when we marched down, and I'd done it. I'd done it with Black Dyke where you marched down with the Nationals Trophy and the and the European and the and they get a massive cheer Black Dyke. Yeah. But when you march down in front of the little Junior Blast, mm-hmm. woof, that makes the hairs on your arms tingle. Because yeah. everyone just can't believe how good they are, you know, for their age. Mm-hmm. And, and I've seen it. I've been going around the WIC contests and I've seen <laughs> them walking down the road and in front of me. And I'm just thinking, 
Wow, that, that those are some kids that really enjoy playing music and are having a lot of fun doing it. Yeah, I mean, and the other thing I learned with the other thing I learned with that Zoe was, and I learned this one a long time back because you'll notice a lot of the if you ever see junior blast play or any of my primary school bands, they never use music. No, I have noticed. Yeah, but they, they all they all can read music, mm-hmm. but. It was just by accident many years ago where some of them had forgot the music for, for rehearsal and I went, well, we're going to have to go and photocopy some stuff now and get it sorted. And they went, no, because we know it, Mr Rig. We, we know our parts. And I went, how many, how many more are you lot know your music off by heart? And they all put their hands up. This was at Smithy Bridge Primary School. So I went, right, let's play, let's play Circus Parade then. No music. And they absolutely played it all the way through. And I thought, this is good. And I went, right, let's do our next piece now, which, let's say, for instance, it was uh, Our Fingers Will Travel. Same again. And before I knew it, we'd played all five of our pieces for Rochdale Festival from memory. And I thought, look, this is it. And from then on now, Junior Blast, they'll go, go anywhere. I mean, we don't have to take music stands or anything. That's easy, isn't it? You don't have to put 50 million stands and carry a load of music around. Well, it's like when we've done the Leeds Festival of Brass for Black Dyke, mm-hmm. when I was playing at Black Dyke, you, you might have been there. I will be on the stage, Yorkshire Youth Band will be around the back of them. And then Nick, Nick said, just bring Junior Blast on because they don't need any music. And I used to just get them all crammed in the middle, yeah. in, in the centre of, of Black Dyke, and then just just start them up and everyone were like, I used to look at like, I think it was Gary Curtin when he were on Solo Phone and he's like, his bottom lip rang, you know. <laughs> and he said to me, I can't believe how good they are. <laughs> it's amazing, really, really amazing. Alongside doing all your teaching, you're actually the lead trumpet player of the Jaeger Maestro's Oompa Band, which I'm not afraid to say I've seen a million times and there'll be people out there that have probably seen you play at Butlins and all sorts of places. But that's a completely different style of playing for you compared to brass bands. What's that like? Because it's it's a complete contrast. It's pop tunes and all sorts. Yeah, and I think that's why I I enjoy doing that now. Uh, Whereas sitting on the stage with... The likes of Black Dyke, Fairies, Grammy, any of the top bands, you know, it's serious stuff. So you sat there, the audience, they're there to enjoy it, obviously, but it, it, you can hear a pin drop before you play. Everything's got to be bang on in place. Whereas with the umpire band, it's it's just fun, you know. Everyone can just let their hair down and just enjoy themselves. Yeah. And I, I enjoy, uh, obviously, I, I've always been a chordic player, but having to go on the trumpet I, I quite like it yeah you know i do and i don't think i'm that bad on it you know what i mean I'm, when you sell lead trumpet player as well i i watched last week uh an ex-pupil from wardlow you might have heard of craig wilde yeah now he he did his own uh tribute to maynard ferguson last week flipping it and me and craig had the same teacher over in ebden bridge yeah. right ramsbottom again we owe a lot to but Craig has gone on to be, he's, he's in the Strictly Come Dancing Band. He's, he did his own thing. He, that's, these are lead trumpet players. I think I'm really playing at it, to be honest. But I enjoy it. I do enjoy it. 
and, and I try, I try hard at it. You do a I'm good job, Billy. You do a good job. Well, I'm, I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> One question that I have here is that I don't know anything about it, and trying to say the name of it, I'm going to butcher the name of it. But in 2019, you were awarded the position of Chevalier for the Ordre de Coteur de Champagne. What even is that position? Oh, sorry. Right. So, so yeah, this is uh, it's a Champagne Appreciation Society. Right. Okay. And uh, I was asked a long time ago by a neighbour of my mum and dad's who was like very high up in this, if I could come along to one of their meetings and perform a fanfare before each bottle of champagne was presented. So that's basically what it is. And I've been doing that for now, I think, 15 years. Wow. But again, it's it's a great thing because I've played at at the Etihad a few times now Mm -hmm. uh, in the chairman's lounge. So I see things in places like that backstage you know, in places like Man City, where other people don't get to see, I've also done you know, every every hotel in Manchester as well. Wow! It's always a duet though with it, so it's another trumpet player as well. And I've got to tell you a quick story of one, and you it was it was with Benjamin yeah. Reeson. Yeah. And we were playing at the Midland Hotel in Manchester. Yeah. So we have to do like five fanfares throughout the night. Mm-hmm. before each champagne and each course of meal. And uh, in between one of these, French Ben said to me, let's go and have a look around the hotel because we've got like half an hour spare here. So we did, but we took our instruments with us and we went upstairs in the Midland to this other big banqueting room and Heart Radio was having their big Christmas do there. Right. And French Ben said to me, he says... Why don't we just run in here and do a fanfare and then run back out? And I said, I said, I am not, I am not doing that because we'll get in trouble. And he went, Come on, let's just do it. It'll be, it'll be fun. So he didn't, I didn't take much persuading. So we both go straight in the middle of this room and it's packed. They're all eating at these really uh, fancy tables. Blast this fanfare out and the place just went dead and everyone stopped eating and looked up to say, what is going on here? We finished and just walked straight back out, both laughing, ran back down to our room we were waiting and we thought, that, that was quite funny now. <laughs> until, yeah, but until, until the door swung open, the red-faced hotel manager who said, are you the two who's just been up there and blasted their trumpets in a in a meeting I've organised? And we went, no, and he goes, it was you two. And we, we got in a lot of trouble for that. That's hilarious. But I've just, I've just had a phone call, Zoe, yeah. uh, off Tommy, my, my friend, who is, is one of the uh, founders of this Champagne Society, mm-hmm. and they're looking for it happening again in October. Hopefully, fingers crossed again, and it's going to be at the Midlands. So, I don't think I've been sacked off from there by the hotel manager. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's a brilliant story. That is absolutely brilliant. In 2015, you were awarded the Harry Mortimer Medal. Yeah. Which is obviously, an incredible award to receive. What was your reaction when you were awarded this such a prestigious award? Uh, I remember it uh, because. Again, it was just a total surprise to me. And I remember 
turning up to a midweek concert of that day at Wakefield Opera House. And Nick, Nick Charles was waiting for me at the player's entrance door. And he goes, please come to my office. I've got some amazing news for you. So I thought, what is this? So uh, I goes to his changing room and he says, you're getting the Mortimer, you're getting the Mortimer Award. And I went, you're kidding. And he goes, no, he says, Lee, it's massive. He says, you're going to go to London and you're going to get it presented and all this and the other. So that's when I found out about it. And then obviously all the bump came through and I had to go down to the Merchant Tailors Hall in London. And what an occasion that was, receiving that. Fantastic. You, you were some of the biggest names in, in music, you know. What were they getting awarded as well? There was, I got the Martin Medal and Goff Richard's wife got the Isles Medal on behalf of, of Goff. Sat with them and uh, Frank Renton and Richard Evans. But it was uh, a great occasion. And what tied in nicely with that was obviously we went down for the whole. Uh, we went down midweek because I think that was like a Wednesday evening in London. And luckily enough, the youth band were performing the Lord Mayor show on the Sunday. Wow. So we stayed down. Yeah. And then obviously we went and moved to the hotel where the youth band was staying. And we had that with a fantastic weekend. So a great time for me getting the award and then being part of the Lord Mayor show in London. Fantastic. Before I get on to my last question, obviously, thank you again for spending your time welcome. on Enjoy this. It. It's been a real pleasure to be able to chat to you. It's, I love hearing all the stories and the insights of, you know, everyone's playing careers. It's really great for me yeah. to be able to chat to you. So, to be honest, there's again. a lot more than that I could tell you, but you've not got the time, have we? <laughs> we, we could probably sit and talk all day long. Yeah. I'll but... tell you another time. <laughs> yeah. Thank you once again. And my last question is, do you have... Any aspirations to go in and playing back full time in a brass band, or is it is that over? Do you know, in this lockdown, obviously the Jaegers haven't been playing or anything, and I've really missed playing. That's why I've been practicing McCormick and stuff like that more. Mm-hmm. At the minute, I I haven't got a band. I've got the Jaegers, mm-hmm. which I'm really looking forward to getting back to. But that's why I've been practicing. But it has crossed my mind whether to. To go back in it, but if you go, if you're playing in the top bands, it's a massive, massive dedication. Mm-hmm. I want to do it, and then the other half of me says, "You've done your time, and it, it, it's too long. It's mm-hmm. it, it's too much again to give up." Plus now Matthew and my son, who's in Black Dyke as well, and isn't Jaegers. Um, Laura is also in Black Dyke, and mm-hmm. Emma's at Fairies. So it's a fam- family affair, but. It would be on my daughters at Liverpool University. But I couldn't go back to doing band full time because me and Sue, my wife, now just have free time together, you know. Yeah. Which I don't know. It is good. Uh, I like being with Sue. I'm not sure she likes being with me. <laughs> I think she does. But if I was off tootling down with band all the time, she'd just be on her own, which wouldn't be fair. Yeah. Unless I, I can get her, to, get her to come along to band. I don't know, <laughs> but I don't think she would. You never know. Although she did in the old days. She did in the old days. She used to come, she used to, come to a lot of the Black Diet rehearsals and sit right behind me and Kevin. Oh, you never know after this going out, you might be having loads of people ringing you up saying, do you want to come play for my band? Yeah. 
you never know you never know and this is where i'm gonna end this episode thank you again lee but thank you to everyone that is out there listening this is the third episode of the brass cast there are two episodes out with morgan griffiths and philip mccann so if you've not listened to those do go check them out you can listen on spotify apple podcasts and now google podcasts that is a new update since the last episode do go listen to them thank you for tuning in don't forget to follow us on facebook and instagram to keep up to date with everything the brass cast related thank you for tuning in and that's all for now bye bye